This is Padua Quest, live from the heart of Brooklyn. Padua Quest is an hour-long talk show about everything in and relating to technology. Starring three Brooklyn technophiles, well, almost, Eric Newman, hi, Tyler Dinner, hey there, and Chris Grabowski. Hello. This week's episode, Patent Wars. That's right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Pull Request. My name is Eric Newman, and this week, we will bring you some information on the patent system and the militaristic litigation that has, uh, how do we say this, Christian, Lit- that has taken place between many technology companies over the last 15, 20 years. Uh, I would argue that's been dying down, though. Has it? Yes, substantially. Well, that's good. That's fantastic to hear, actually, uh, because it was really nasty for a while. Mm-hmm. I imagine so, it's going to start back up in a on, in a particular area, but within like the last five so? years, it's been not much of a thing. Interesting, and I think we have a new antagonist in Washington that might uh, that might help spin the wheels a little bit. I'm sorry, I am off an antagonist today. in Washington with everything. So that's true. Nobody knows. Uh, nobody really knows what's going to happen. Uh, anyway, uh, you, you just want to be political, but. <laughs> Yes, but that's that's all we'll talk, we'll talk about for politics today. And if I seem like I'm a little slower and off my rocker and not as good with the timing today, that's because I seem to have a cold. I'm sorry, guys. Wow, thanks for your support. I appreciate it. We forgive you. <laughs> thanks. Um, so how how are you two? How have you guys been in the last week? Just peachy. Just peachy? Yep. Can't complain. Can't complain? Okay. Anything, uh, anything that you want to share with the group? Uh, I'll be going to DevOps Days Baltimore in March. Say that again? I'll be going to DevOps Days Baltimore in March. DevOps Days colon Baltimore? Yep. I'll be there for work, so uh, anybody who wants to come by the NS1 booth, say hi. What is, uh, when in March? Uh, the 7th and 8th. March 7th and 8th. It's actually right after I get back from my uh, epic two-week trip, which we'll talk about later. But uh, what do you do in a conference like that? Uh, I'll be standing by the booth mostly to answer some of the more technical questions, and then I'll be sitting in on some of the talks. Can I uh, go to Baltimore and ask you about my horrible ping time to our service that we use to podcast? Actually, I would love to run our company software on uh, through your device, which if you go to th- uh, certain websites, you technically do. So Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, well, I, I know that we can't really get into that because you're embargoed by a non-disclosure agreement. But, um, anyway, uh, how do we, how do we want to begin? Oh, I'm sorry. I had some really horrible news this past week. It was Valentine's Day and I'm single. <laughs> no, actually, on Valentine's Day, That's I found out news. that my, uh... That's old. Sorry, Tyler? That's not news. <laughs> That's not news, no. Um, but speaking of being single, my I found out on Valentine's Day that my ex-girlfriend's cat died. And that has really been really been the horrible, horrible story for me this week. I, uh, ugh. It, you know, if, if either one of you guys died, it would hurt. But I, I don't know if it would hurt more than losing that cat. I'm sorry. Thanks. Well, we're sorry to hear about your cat. I know, I know. And I'm allergic to cats, too. That way. <laughs> no, it's that I um, 
like pets more than people. That's not true. Anyway, uh, to technology. Uh, well, you know, that's maybe because they can't talk back. Um, and there's no way that you can teach a cat how to code. So uh, You'd be surprised. <laughs> really? I would be surprised, actually. Um, <laughs> when half the Ruby developers, <laughs> they could be replaced by an animal. Hey. Yeah, but cats, you can't. You can't. Language is nice. <laughs> right. Uh, before we get into the news have. this week. <laughs> gotcha. Before we get into the news this week, I wanted to give everybody a quick update on our podcast. Because we are, yes, a podcast. And you can go uh, to pullrequest.net slash podcast to pull us right up on iTunes. Or go to the iTunes so- store and search for pull request, and you'll see us. We have a nice blue kind of teal uh, album art. And uh, that's about it. No drama this week with that. I, uh, I did write an email to Radio Free Brooklyn asking them to take down our stuff. And uh, we have officially, we've closed the door. Don't have a sound effect. On that chapter of our lives. So we are completely independent in doing things completely on our own. And we'd appreciate anybody who can listen to us. Now, ironically, if you're listening to this and me telling you about going to iTunes uh, to download our podcast, you probably already have. So it's a non-starter. Anyway, you guys are really verbose this week. Yep. Um, I got nothing. You got nothing. Okay. No. Are you guys subscribed to us on iTunes? I am not. You're not. You have an Android phone. Well, if you use Pocket Casts, uh, I put a link on our Facebook page. If you go to facebook.com slash pull request, and you'll be able to click a link to hopefully go to your, that your preferred podcatching device will like. Uh, and if you want to roll the dice, go to just point it to pullrequest.net slash feed, and that'll uh, redirect you to our uh, RSS feed for the podcast, which should work in any podcast client. So please, give it a try and let us know how it works. And now, the news. JavaScript ASLR exploit. It breaks, uh, it breaks this thing called address space layout randomization on 22 or up to 22, no, 22, and they list them, different CPU architectures. Let's hear it from our news department. Nobody on presence knows to you. The internet, Wednesday, February 15th. Five researchers from Variety University in the Netherlands have put together an attack that can break the ASLR, the address space layout randomization on at least 22 different CPU microarchitectures. Such CPU architectures include those in your home computer and phone, such as Intel, AMD, and ARM chips. This side channel attack predicts which locations in memory page table are being accessed during a page table walk by the Memory Management Union, Unit, or MMU. ASLR was introduced about 10 years ago as a means to prevent programs from reading, jumping to, or modifying locations in your computer's memory that were outside of the original program's purview. This attack does wonders to defeat that technology. What does this mean for computer security going forward? Only time will tell. And so many Americans are afraid of what happens next. We at least know the world still turns and the truth marches on. This has been News to Use. Brought to you by Pneumonia. So yeah. Mm-hmm. How how was that? I think I did a better job this re- week. I did it every week. Sounded pretty good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yes, because this time I wrote down what I was going to say before I said it. 
Imagine so, that. Uh, about the attack, is, is this the one that actually attacks the um, uh, the uh, branch buffer within the CPU to see what the next uh, uh, instruction to execute is to be, and then thus uh, rendering the randomization of address space useless? I, be I believe so. They say, we have built a side-channel attack, specifically an evict plus time cache attack, that can detect which locations in the page table pages are ac page table pages are accessed during a page uh, access during a page table walk performed by the MMU researcher said for example okay. on the x8664 architecture our attack can find the offsets that are accessed by the MMU for each of the four page table pages the offset within each page breaks 9 bits of entropy so even a perfect ASLR implementation with 36 bits of entropy is not safe okay so Basically, it's that, uh, that by default, uh, the address space is actually randomized across the actual memory as opposed to being sequential. And the well, that's, the, what the, by, that's what ASLR is. Yes, I'm saying that. And by uh, doing this attack, it kind of just can follow through all of that and treat it as if it was sequential. Ouch. Yes. Ouch. ASLR, I believe, was first introduced in either Windows Vista or XP Service Pack 2. Much uh, prior to those, that was just the, the first Windows. In Windows, I'm sorry. Yeah. In uh, the, in Linux, I, I I guess it was introduced earlier. Yes, much earlier. When? Uh, I, I don't have an exact kernel number, but it's two dot something. No, but I mean like a, a year. Was it before 2006? I, I, would, I would I would I would imagine it's around then. Okay, well, 2006 is when Microsoft did it, and in fact, OS 10, I believe. Didn't have that. They didn't have ASLR until um, 2008, maybe. They were actually yeah. later to the game. They had to pull that upstream from uh, BSD. Oh, really? That's what was inhibiting them. Uh, it was already there. They just had to actually wedge it into the OSX kernel, the Darwin kernel. How much? How much work goes on? Uh, excuse me. How much work on BSD are people doing these days? Actually, the way Apple that, seems to work these days with their stuff like that is they actually contribute to BSD and then pull. I was going to say they the don't work at Apple. Um, Even people who work at Apple seem to contribute directly to the uh, either just the Darwin open source parts of OS X, or they actually uh, contribute to like free BS, uh, uh, free BSD, and then uh, basically uh, cherry pick parts of uh, free BSD into the Darwin uh, side of things, and then build from there into OS X. That's probably the best way to do it, because if they have some kind of lower-level functionality that they want to uh, implement, that they just go right to the lowest level, the operating system, which for macOS is BSD. They've lost a lot of those guys, though, too, recently, so that's my only concern. Really? Where have yeah. they gone? Uber, for the most part. Ooh. Yeah, uh, or Tesla. Tesla's the other big one. Uh, basically, <sighs> in either case, to work on self-driving cars, like uh, they lost their uh, guy who's basically responsible for LLVM. He's now over. I've read about Tesla. LLVM a lot lately. Sorry, I didn't mean to. If you're no. dealing with a compiled language, there's a about a one out of three chance that you're dealing with LLVM. LLVM stands for. Uh, let's see, I know the VM is actually virtual machine, but it's only compile time via a virtual machine. Let me see if it. Really, I thought it was. Uh, uh, I'm just trying to go off the top of my head. It's like manager. low low level virtual machine, if I believe I believe is what it is. And Wikipedia says the LLVM compiler infrastructure project, formerly the low-level virtual machine. I was right. Good job. Is a collection of modular and reusable computer and touch chain? 
What is it? Tool chain technologies. Mm -hmm. Basically, used to develop computer front ends and uh, compiler front ends and back ends. Yes, it's a, a set of tools for compilers. Essentially, that way, you have uh, a any given language front end, and y you can easily compile it to different architectures. So everything is being virtualized these days. Well, it's not virtualized in the sense of like running a VM that you'd run on like Amazon or DigitalOcean, but it's a VM in the sense that it is interpreting code and spitting out uh, more an executable. Would you say it's just like a heavily abstracted um, series of APIs? It's I wouldn't use the word abstracted for that. It's a series of APIs that uh, are uh, loosely coupled enough that you can all of a sudden say. I just want uh, to be able to compile, uh, I think, uh, well, pretty much everything that as an Apple language uses LLVM, and so do uh, many other compiled languages. So uh, Clang is the big C compiler. That's like the uh, really nice one to use now, and that's what ships, uh, but with anything uh, BSD-based, so OSX or FreeBSD comes with Clang. And so then with that, you can say, use the x86 backend, the x86-64, or the... Uh, um, ARM64 or ARM32 or the uh, uh, CIP or the RISC. Gotcha. Gotcha. And uh, about LLVM, MIT says that their modified LLVM, LLVM compiler optimizes parallel code better than any commercial or open source compiler. But more about that later on because we've got to get to, of course, Patent Wars. I love doing that. You yeah. want to give it a try? Uh, sure. Pat All right. Um, no, 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 no. Hold on. We got to count it off because we're not looking yeah. at each other. So, three, two, one. Pet wars. More. Okay, Tyler, you want to give it a shot? <laughs> For the listeners' sake, no. Let's move on. Okay. Um, yes, we have to talk about patents because uh, patents are crucial to many things in our economy, in our world, in our life, in our culture. Um, I, uh, patents, uh, are a way to secure intellectual property against infringement. Now, what you have to do is, of course, explicitly detail, almost... Uh, I wouldn't use the word explicit. In fact, you're actually better off being less, uh, explicit. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, well, it, I think the, the explicit, the explicitity needs to vary based on the type of patent that you're filling out, for, like mm. a provisional versus a non-provisional patent. But hold on just a second. So, you have to give away, you have, you've developed something of your own, and mm -hmm. you say, wow, this is really novel, it, it, I've, I'm the first person to do this, uh, and I've done it in a very special way, and I don't want anyone to copy me. So, mm -hmm. what I'm going to do is go to the United States Patent Office, or nowadays you can go to LegalZoom.com, they're not an advertiser, but they do simplify the process, or you could go right to the Patent Office's website, Patent and Trademark Office's website and uh, fill out an application for a provisional patent. I believe provisionals are the easiest to start with. Is that true, well, Christian? Provisionals are, provisionals are basically saying, hey, I have this idea. Uh, no, 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 answer the question. And we're, we're going with, we have a flow here. It's naturally so, what you get, get to begin with, but it's basically Okay, so you have to start with a provisional patent. patent. No, no, but it's very, it's the usual thing to do. Uh, it's very hard to enforce a provisional patent. Okay, and now we get back into the um, the gray area of ex explicity, expliticity. Basically, what is the you word want your patent for? application to be as vague as possible to cover everything. As, 
because if right and to cover specific, every possible if it is very specific um, it's very easy for them to deny you as well exactly exactly and so you want to say well you know this uh there's having rectangles on a screen that's pretty much what I came up with. And, uh, you know, if you have it in a grid of icons, that's me. But if you have it in a way that you can move them anywhere, that's not me. And that's uh, quite ridiculous and a real software patent. But, um, so first, uh, a patent typically costs a few grand. I think, what, like $6,000 if you don't hire a lawyer? That's pretty cheap. It's pretty cheap. That's, a, that's, okay. like, that's, like, one, that's like one that had no... Uh, no one contested it. Well, I'm talking about the how much it costs to register a patent just to get it in the system, not to it's litigate. The paperwork. Yeah, yeah, that's like a very still cheap registration fee. That's basically one where you're not trying to go through getting a provisional and a uh, full-fledged one, and you're not trying to expedite the process at all. Gotcha. Oh, yeah, it's expediting. And uh, I believe, I feel like this provisional patent versus non-provisional patent versus expediting process is just a way for the patent office to make a bit more money, wouldn't you no, say? Th th there is a, no, uh, there is a uh, very valid reason to have a provisional, and that's basically to say, hey, this is my idea. Well, first, what it is a provisional been... patent? What uh, is it just? Uh, I'm getting to that. A provisional patent is basically saying, hey, here's my idea. It's not verified being a patent, but in the event that it is, uh, it's basically locking you in to say you had this idea first. Gotcha. And then you want awesome. to make that idea as grand or as, as vague or differently interpretable as possible. You want that idea to be able to cover things as broadly as possible. So that way when you say you have a patent on um, a button that sends you home and having that be your only hardware button on your particular mobile device, for instance, mm -hmm. if you say just it just needs to be a button and it takes you to the home screen and you press it, and it's the only hardware button on the phone, then that that's the patent. Where saying it's the only hardware button on the phone can actually hurt you. And there probably is somewhere in the patent system a uh, patent that says that actually just a having a button on your phone that takes you to the home page all the time. Right, and that would be where you'd want to go, is you'd want to say, I want a button that when you hit it, it always goes to the homepage. And then you'd leave out the part that's like, that says this phone can only have one button on it that does this one thing. Mm-hmm. Apple's because VR that would... patent is Sorry? Apple's VR patent was amazing for iPhone. It was perfectly vague. It said you cannot make any device. They patented the idea of making any device that holds an iPhone in front of your face for uh, VR. That's a good call. Yeah. That's why VR is only available on Android. Interesting. Nothing on iPhone yet. So that way That's... Apple has been able to uh, prevent themselves from having to like tip their... Uh, dip their toe in the, in the pool, and they're just going to be able to dive right in when they've sat back and perfected it and watched other people screw it up. Well, that's what Apple has classically done, though. Apple yep. has never been really first to market, and they've typically let everybody else screw it up and make bad decisions and, and bad technology, and then they come out with their thing that's, ba that's heavily derivative of all of the mistakes that the rest of the market have, have made, and then they come out and say, we've invented this, we're the first people to do this, <laughs> but really they're not. They're just... Refining Sometimes it. Sometimes the market is just being dumb. Like there are so many bad MP3 players, and then they said iPod. Like here, let's just give you a big screen and a wheel so you can access stuff faster. Well, remember though, before the iPod, there was the what? The, what the Zune? Nope, Christian. The Newton. No. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. No, the Moto Rocker. Oh. What? Oh, forgot about that. 
Yes, that's right. In in uh, 2004, 2005, Apple had a partnership with Motorola, who at the time had the best flip phone uh, ever invented. And if you were in high school in the early 2000s, like us, uh, you really wanted one of those. And I forgot See, what the name was. I remember was that. My, my yeah. first MP3 player was actually this thing that plugged into the back of my handspring PDA, and it carried wow. only 12 songs. Wow. I had my my first MP3 player was uh, a Sony Walkman that had and that could read MP3 CDs. Yeah, I loved those. What 140 songs in one CD? No big deal. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Imagine that. And then I had an um uh in uh Hapog, uh hard disk based. Yeah, Hapog hard disk based uh, MP3 player that held four gigabytes and had a hard. I mean, it, would, it weighed like five pounds, and. Uh, was really really thick anyway um that was before the ipod too i believe so uh but uh the moto rocker was apple's foray into uh having a portable music player and it didn't work out it had a horrible experience that everybody nobody was happy i don't think motorola was happy that the phone didn't perform well uh software wise it didn't perform well from a business perspective nobody at apple really enjoyed the user experience when they ended it and uh motorola ended up getting bought by google it looked ahead of its oh, time, though. Time from then. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, but anyway. Uh, anyway, um, so uh, patents. Yep. Descriptions submitted with a provisional patent application can be informal. This means they do not need to be in a standardized form. However, the USPTO strongly recommends submitting specific descriptions that adequately describe how to make and use your invention. This is because highly detailed descriptions make it easier for the USPTO to later associate your non-provisional patent application with your earlier filed provisional patent application. Of course, I'm sure you could come up with an easy way to associate the two than just actually giving away, being more explicit in the patent, but that is their recommendation, and the USPTO recommends that you follow up your provisional patent with an application for a non-provisional patent within 12 months of the approval of the provisional. Any uh, anything to add there, Christian? Um, that sounded like a very good textbook definition of a patent. Well, that's where we're starting. All right. Is there anything you want to add to that? Uh, provisional patents? Not, not as far as description goes. I'd say that's pretty accurate. I'd uh, like to go into a bit more of the effects and uh, kind of the reasons why I would say patents are, at least in software, a uh, not so valuable concept anymore. Gotcha. Well, first, right before we get into that, uh, patents are good for about 20 years. Unless, and when the patent is about to expire, um, you can do something to try to extend the life of the patent. And this is something that a lot of pharma companies are doing with off-label usages. They patent a drug that does a certain thing, but if they find out that the drug can also do another thing, they can repatent it, saying that this same, that, you know, a mechanism for... Uh, inflaming your face for Botox, you know, that was previously used for something else, but since they uh, changed what the, the... They found a new use for it, it allowed them to renew the patent application and give them another 15 or 20 years on owning that intellectual property before it would have to be generically available. And uh, that's the big trade-off, is you have to tell the government and everybody, because it's public records, your secrets, or most of your secrets, and, but in exchange for doing that, the government allows you to license them uh, to other people or sue them for infringing on it. And that creates and sucks out a lot of money in the economy. So, um, for example, 
this pill will cure your ED. And 20 years later, hey, it also kills squirrels. Right. Mm. Exactly. And because they found a new usage for it, they could repatent it under, you know, a method for killing squirrels. So So people with pills just got to be giving that stuff to, like, every other kind of animal and person with this product. Well, that's why they have the drug laboratories. But pharma, uh, pharma seems to be the second biggest abuser of patents, I believe, outside of technology. And I would say tech is not even that much of an abuser so much. It's uh, definitely on the hardware mm-hmm. side, it's the case. But the software side... Uh, I mean, come on. Christian, Apple sued Samsung because the color of their phone icon was green. Yes, but that, that, that was like actually, a child's play. If you look when those uh, patents were filed, though, it was a good bit uh, prior to it actually being the case. As well as I'm saying, within the last five years, though, software patents have really died down, in part because the head of the patent office is a former Googler who she is ah. uh, pretty uh, strict about actually awarding software patents. And, that's uh, that's really good. I'm the, I'm I'm really happy to hear that. There there, there is speculation though that that'll all change, uh, particularly um, uh, once uh, self-driving cars are very uh, in, in focus. Uh, and these are just rumors entirely. But sure. the fact that uh, Google put a lot of work it, uh, into it early on and then kind of stopped, they have a lot of pre-existing IP that if they were to get the software patents. It'd be pretty easy for them to all of a sudden get all those and enforce all of them. When you have companies like Tesla and Uber who have that the, the self driving cars actually on the market, while Google is like, yeah, we just built them just to get this IP. Well, right, and there's also the whole first to invent versus first to file argument, where I believe the patent office only recognizes the first person so, to file the patent and not the first person to have the, the technology. Best example of that in history is the patent for the television. If you, look, if you look at uh, the story behind that, there were basically – it started out with uh, this one guy who uh, built the television, and there was another guy who subsequently was working on it being hired by um, – uh, so it, was, uh, it basically became uh, NBC versus ABC, and at the time they were both uh, radio. Mm, nope. No, so there's the guy who is the individual that I'm saying, but then there's the guy That's, who was part I believe of NBC. that was uh, Farnsworth who actually yes. – Yes. Good Far- news, everyone. Yes. Everybody. So Farns- yes. Farnsworth, Philo Farnsworth, was the one. He was who a was... student, wasn't he? He didn't work for NBC. No, but he, he did not. F- no, but the NBC were the ones going NBC. against him. NBC right. were the ones going against him. Who With, they uh, hired wait, a guy. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Uh, Sarnoff. Yes. Didn't look it up. Yes. I love television. Uh, so it was right. It was Sarnoff versus Farnsworth. Now, I, I said you were wrong about NBC and ABC because the government actually forced NBC to break up its then-monopoly of television. Correct. Uh, and, it cre- and the government forced NBC. There were two networks, right? NBC Blue and NBC Red, and the government forced one of them to become ABC. Correct. So uh, that's why ABC sucks. But anyway. Um, so, okay, so the patent on the television. Uh, the whole thing was it came down to the fact that Farnsworth had pre-existing work while uh, Sarnoff uh, was basically late to the party, and they f- were trying to follow at the same time, essentially. And wasn't it his pre-existing work some sketch that he mailed to, like, a school teacher? Yes. And b- because that had a, an official postmark, he said, See, I was the one who invented well, the television! Well, it, it wasn't that an official postmark. It was uh, basically, like, doing your thesis when you're a uh, PhD candidate. In fact, ah. I believe that's what it was. Gotcha. And, so that is very valid work that can be considered IP uh, quite easily. Uh, in fact, that is probably one of the least contested sources of uh, uh, patent 
patentable, patentable material. That's good to know. Um, and that specifically, I believe, was the basis for a Simpsons episode where um, somebody filed a, a trade. It was trademark. So it was a trademark dispute against Itchy and Scratchy. And the guy who uh, drew Itchy or like the character of Itchy was originally created by some other guy in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And they said really good with these references anyway. Anyway. Sorry, what? What I want to point out about patents is actually the fact that they are not all they're cracked up to be in the world of software. Go on. What is is there a difference between specifically a software patent and uh, just a regular patent? There, it's a regular patent. It's just a matter of software is a very hard thing to actually get a patent for, and it's a very hard thing to enforce. And why and, is that? Uh, well, a big part of it is what's called the Alice Clause where you can never get a patent for blah, blah, blah on a computer. It has oh, to be, thank God. It has to be that, that you, you ask a particular process that is unique across the board, not just on a computer. A method for selecting items on a computer. A method for looking at pornography on a computer. So it can, it can be that, hey, there's this method and it's unique to being on a computer, but you can't argue that it's unique because it's on a computer. Exactly. Didn't uh, Microsoft try to patent linked lists? I believe so. And what happened with that? I don't recall. Oh. Yeah. That would have been good, too. Dirty. Well, I do you know put, about like, And that's one of those note. things... Well, hold on. Link, patenting li- linked lists, and that happened uh, in the last 10 years, I believe, is, is a perfect example of, of uh, patenting something that has some pretty obvious prior art and... Oh, absolutely has been used it's a standard data structure you can't patent a, a standard like that so when you have that mm. amount of money though it's like that, that oh it doesn't hurt to try kind of argument so and what oh, i will I say about microsoft though is prior to 1995 microsoft only had one patent and and what was that patent i believe it was on uh, basic itself the interesting uh, uh, it pertained to the particular basic interpreter that uh gates really got microsoft started off of and, that makes sense. That makes sense. And uh, at, by 1987, so I forget when Microsoft originally started, but that's pretty early on. 81? 81 or 80? I think it was 81. So by 87, uh, Microsoft already had $300 billion in revenue, and that's with one patent. For basic? Yeah. When did they do the deal with IBM? Uh, I licensed not, DOS. Uh, I, I don't know what you that offhand. Uh, you might know that better than I do. Actually, I don't really pay t- too much. I remember the scene in Pirates of uh, Silicon Valley, the best <laughs> Steve Jobs Bill Gates movie, where uh, they talked about they did one of those really cool '90s like they stopped the background of the scene and the main character. Well, no, '90s was a bit of a different story. Like uh, Windows '95. Brought no, 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 no. The, the movie Pirates of Silicon oh, Valley was from okay. the '90s. Anyway, oh, uh, I was going to say is uh, yeah. so Windows '95 brought about 77 patents, roughly, and uh, basically going on from there, the o- the each OS release they had for a while, I believe, right up until they switched over to the NT kernel. Uh, was the highest grossing amount of patents uh, coming out of the company was always around the OS. So you're saying around n- 1994, 1995 is when mm-hmm. Microsoft and then many other technology companies since have decided to just patent everything that they can. Well, for a while. And then it's changed, I'd say, 
probably since like 2010, 2012, somewhere in there. Okay, well, let's let's not jump ahead to that. But, um, hold on one second. Uh, PC market, a 1980 before Project Chess was formally approved. IBM sent a team, uh, Microsoft. We should have really added this beforehand. Anyway. Uh, it did that that one agreement for licensing, and that's not even really a patent. That's just licensing intellectual property in the early '80s uh, mm-hmm. to IBM because of the volume of the PCs that were produced. Microsoft amassed a huge, huge no H fortune. That by the year I was born, 1987, uh, they had what did you say, three billion dollars in their pocket? Uh, three hundred million. 300 million. Okay. And that's back when 300 million was 300 million. Now it's like 600 million. Anyway. Um, so, yes. Uh, sorry, go on. Oh, I, I just laughed. That's all. Gotcha. That was uh, a funny laugh. Well, um, with with uh, the rise in patents and software patents, which may have peaked, like we said, mm-hmm. uh, there, there, a lot of these patent lawsuits are filed in one very specific city in Texas. Do you know oh, the name of that city? Uh, not offhand. I do know the reasoning behind that. And that okay, is well, just... hold on. The, the name of that city is Marshall, and a, lot of, and a lot of technology companies have, like, I think, do you need to have a one-man office? There's, like, some whatever yes. they do in well, Delaware. Well, you there? either need, so, my uncle's a patent attorney, by the way. And, uh, oh, we should have had him on. <laughs> and uh, so uh, uh, he's going there down there frequently. Uh, a big part of it is because uh, that particular patent attorney has to be licensed in that state. But the reason why they choose that uh, that area, particularly for a lot of these litigations, is because it's very cheap to have the litigation occur down there. Ah. In comparison and they can to pan- I'm sure it's a small else. town where they can pander to the people. And uh, well, hey, I'm it's... just uh, I'm just working for this, you know, multi-billion-dollar company trying to get by. Well, a big part of it too is so. Uh, if you're dealing with a firm, it's different if it's like your company's lawyers versus a firm's lawyers, because like a firm can be licensed in a particular area, and then the lawyer themselves can be licensed. Like uh, for example, my uncle's licensed in New York and New Jersey, and so his representatives can have offices there. But so long, but the firm has the ability to practice within uh, Texas to defend, uh, uh, but only to really defend their clients who are in New York or New Jersey. Gotcha. There's uh. One big patent and patent troll. Actually, you know what? Let's talk about patent trolls because, and we're not talking about Milo, not getting political, but not that type of troll. Uh, a troll that acquires patents but doesn't actually create any technology. And that is a really big problem because we've talked about so far, we've talked about these companies that have patents, but they've also created technology for the patents. And even so, if you know, Microsoft has an army of lawyers hovering over their developers, oh, you know, patent this, patent that, patent that. Uh, that's one level of, ugh. The, but the next level of, ugh, it comes from these companies. They're usually holding companies that, uh, just buy, that just buy intellectual property from other ventures that are about to bust and then acquire a patent portfolio to go out and sue. So that's why Microsoft bought Nokia. Interesting. Well, do you want to go through a quick list of the top eight patent trolls? Sure. All right, number eight. I don't have a drum roll. Uh, Hold on. That's right. Number eight, Acadia Technologies. Patents, U.S. patents and patent applications estimated... 
1,316. Investors and patent owners like Acadia license their IP to corporations. Patent owners split the licensing revenue with Acadia. Acadia says its licensees include Sony, Exxon, Microsoft, and other huge companies. Uh, interesting. Columbia Business School professor Raymond Fishman recently profiled Acadia in a story called The Troll Troll, contending it and companies like it stifle innovation. Number seven. Tessera Technologies. They have 1,375 patents. They began as a semiconductor uh, maker, but then realized its core value was licensing their technology. So they stopped making things and started suing people. Uh, let's see. Number six. Rambus. They have 1,696 patents. Uh, they're not just a patent troll, but the patent troll. They made, uh, Rambus made litigation its top money-making priority for more than a, de in a decade. For more than a decade, sorry. In September, a judge sanctioned Rambus for destroying evidence in its patent fight against SK Hynix Incorporated. Uh, Rambus stressed in a statement that it creates the technology of patents, and the majority of its workers are engineers and inventors. So they say. Number five. Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, or WARF. They have 2,556 patents. Morph patents technologies invented by U-Madison researchers and licenses those patents throughout the world. It gives $45 million each year to fund more research. That's not really a troll, actually. That sounds like they're doing some good work. Well, it's research. Well, yeah, but they're giving, they're licensing patents. They're licensing the body made for people at the university, and then they donate a lot of that money back. Yeah, but the percentage of research, particularly research that's licensed that actually goes to market, is very small. If you're to uh, do research and have it, say, be open source, that frequently happens, and that usually goes to market about ten times as quick as licensed stuff. Interesting. Well, a universe, an association of university technology managers survey revealed over the summer that Wharf had earned the 10th most patent licensing revenue of $57.7 million in a year, with more than 140 sur universities surveyed. Ugh. Okay, number four. Did you, did you like that music? Mm-hmm. That fighting music? Mm -hmm. Why did it go away? Because it ran out. Interdigital. They have 2,955 patents. Interdigital develops wireless technology and also has a, quote, comprehensive program to protect its intellectual property, according to its website. The company or is part of the growing world of NPEs, or alleged patent troll. That's non-producing entities, maybe? The Wall Street Journal re reported it in July of 2011. Interdigital doesn't have, quote, uh, the name recognition of global tech titans, but it can strike fears into their hearts. Great. Uh, number three. You might like this one, Tyler. Rockstar Consortium, LLC. Mm. Not the energy drink, but they have 3,428 patents. Uh, they appear to be a different beast from other NPEs. They're funded by tech giants like Microsoft and Apple to scrutinize successful products to see if they infringe on the thousands of patents that they own. Whoa. Wow. They're and you would have never guessed because... Microsoft and Apple are, of course, rock stars. Pat Troll Bros. Exactly. Number two, Round Rock Research, LLC. They have 3,652 patents. Uh, they're from Mount Kisco, New York. And uh, plain old website company is really a powerful force in the intellectual property world. It was founded by the nation's top patent litigators, former Kirkland and Ellis patent partner John 
Desmarais, the Wall Street Journal reported in January. Round Rock has a reputation for being a troll. Great. Uh, and number one, the number one most fearsome patent troll, as reported by Business Insider, is what? Do you have an idea? Bell Labs or Actolution. Who got to? That was a good <laughs> guess. No. It's something with an oddly generic name, and these are always the worst, called Intellectual Ventures. That's right. They sound so plain. They must be. Yes, and that's so they just want to fade into the background, and you'll never notice them again. Now, which one, invent which one invented the piano key necktie? <laughs> I don't know. We might have to go back to the, uh, the 90s to figure that out. But... Uh, estimated patent and patent applications. Well, this is a tricky one because they have so many subsidiaries that it's difficult to pinpoint the exact number of patents it has. But they estimate between 10 and 15,000 patents. Mm. Meanwhile, Robin Feldman, a professor at UC Hastings, wrote a paper estimating that they have 30 to 60,000 patents. What do we know about the NPE? They're the mother of all alleged patent trolls. And this was the subject of an entire episode of This American Life, and of course, part of an episode of Last Week Tonight. Uh, the company was formed in 2000 by two former Microsoft employees, and has been shrouded in secrecy ever since. For its part, Intellectual Ventures says it's acquired about 70,000 patents and patent applications during its existence. Well, if they... okay. So they said, we don't know, we think it's 10,000... This professor says we think it's 30,000, and then they said at the end, oh, it's 70,000. Hmm. Okay, well, uh, as for accusations about being a patent troll, the company says we can't control how other people characterize us, but we are no different from any other company that is protecting its IP. But they don't make anything. That's the problem. They have nothing mm -hmm. to protect. Tomato, tomato. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, NPEs seem to be, I think, where the money is, where they don't have to make anything, but they can, it's like, it's like, it really kind of waters down patents to being like stocks, where you mm -hmm. think about just buying patents at a certain price, selling them, selling license fees at another oh, yeah. price, yeah. acquiring them, flipping them, suing others for patents. That's, Absolutely. I don't think that's what this was supposed to be, though. Well, no, but that's what it's become, and that's why uh, it's really become this point where, like, uh, you look at Apple, uh, they uh, lately been trying to get patents around LLVM, which is an open source tool, which, by the way, yes, you can patent things from open source. And Oh, I, I actually forgot to ask you that. And uh, so they they get denied on these, and uh, in large part because they are very specific and very technical. Uh, but it was basically things like uh, LLVM's IR that they contributed. They wanted to patent that as well as... Um, here, let me just... Uh, sorry, need to switch That's tabs. The IR is uh, uh, the uh, converting of code uh, written in an interpreted language, such as JavaScript, into an intermediate representation. Uh, so IR is intermediate representation, such ah. as LLVM's immediate intermediate representation. Gotcha. So this is like a, a JIT compiler, but then uh, it's all actually doing compilation as opposed to like V8's JIT compilation, where it's uh, basically going uh, and saying... Uh, before I actually execute, convert everything into just what I have actually written in C++. Uh, what LLVM is doing actually, though, is saying uh, basically have it into actual bytecode before I execute. I gotcha. So IR could just be a kind of by interchangeable with a bytecode. 
it's it, kind it, of it, it's when you're running on a, uh, a VM, so you're doing JIT compilation of an interpreted language, which uh, Apple's uh, put a lot of work into LLVM of recent for Swift actually, and uh, they haven't really tried to patent anything coming from there. But what I would mention about open source and patents too is pretty much as long as you're not on the GPL3, the GNU product license for V3, uh, there is a certain chance that you can get patents from it. Like, uh, you look at Red Hat, I uh, would not know any specific patents offhand from them, but about 90% of their products have a pretty uh, major foothold in enterprise markets, and they are patentable, some of them. And uh, same thing with Chef, they have at least potential to be patented. Uh, I know Kubernetes, uh, which I've worked on a little bit, so I know a good bit about that community. Uh, they have uh, specific documents in there, so that way that the uh, uh, Cloud Native Compute Foundation, who are the current owners of Kubernetes, could in fact uh, get patents from it if they want to. Uh, likewise with Docker, uh, plenty of programming languages also are, uh, fall into this category of open source but patentable. If they have something to patent, they don't necessarily so are, they, they aren't necessarily patented. So it's all in the licensing. Most licenses will say, uh, you can fork this and modify its behavior, you can use this uh, for free of charge, and you you can uh, uh, build on top of it. Uh, the one thing that most licenses, uh, and then the good new product license V3 says just, you cannot, uh, you basically have to make this thing another open source thing if you're going to use it. But uh, gotcha. If But uh, for most of them, it's just, you can use this all you want. Uh, some, some of them will let you modify behavior, some of them won't. And uh, basically, if you were to patent things to that, you just can't take the exact same code, slap a new name on it, and start selling it. Hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Is that really necessary in a patent, though? Is that or that can that just be part of a license agreement, like you said? Well, so there's open source licensing, and then you can get a patent through using that. Gotcha. And it's gotcha. just a matter of uh, it's a lot easier to go to court over things when you have a patent versus just licensing. Interesting. Well, um, how do you, how, how can you monetize? Actually, let's, this is the question I was asking you last week. How do you directly monetize open source code? And I, it, the key word is directly, because I know we talked about how Docker and, um, I can't remember that other, um, Another company. They're making... Oh, Mongo. Uh, they're making billions of dollars off of Halo products. They distribute the software for free, but then they have training and documentation and support, infrastructure, and maybe higher-end services. I, how, do you, how do you effectively monetize... Oh, yeah, they, also, they also have like paid-for versions that have extra features, of course, by the way. Oh, that's how you do it. Well, that's definitely one, one of the ways to do it. But uh, another way is just the fact that you're using this open-source software. Some of them aren't that open-source. Like, uh, I... Uh, I always find it interesting that uh, it takes a lot of effort for uh, InfluxDB, which is a database I like to use for time series data. Uh, it has a lot of usage and data reporting ba uh, back uh, to the company, which they could actually monetize that data, depending on what the data is they're collecting. I don't know. But that's know. the data. That's not the software. Yes, but that's through the software uh, generating that data. It's the same th argument as Facebook, where they're not selling you their, their software. They're getting da data from your so from, the from their software that you're and using. And selling it, right. Yes. And that's the thing, uh, just as a quick public service announcement. If you're using a product or service and it's free, that means you are the product or service that's being sold. Not necessarily. If, unless they're not making money. I mean... 
Well, if you got the GPL for V3 license, you have nothing to worry about. <laughs> so they're not making money. That's so basically that's Richard Stallman being like, respect my freedom, respect my authority. That's funny. Um, he basically is Cartman. Well, I don't have any Cartman sound bites on the on the thing. I'm sorry. Do you have any Richard sorry, Stallman sound, sound bites? <laughs> no. Um, one thing, uh, speaking of open source software and patents... Microsoft says that the Linux kernel and OpenOffice infringe on 235 of Microsoft's patents. So the Linux the, kernel, wait, hold on, let me uh, finish this, you can jump in. The Linux kernel, the deepest layer of the free operating system, which interacts most directly with computer hardware, violates allegedly 42, good number, Microsoft patents. The Linux GUI, graphical user interface, essentially the way that design elements minus menus and toolbars are set up, Run afoul of another 65, which if Microsoft patents user interface, that might as well be a lesson of things not to do. Um, the, the open office suite of programs, which is analogous to Microsoft Office, infringes on 45 more. Email programs infringe on 15, while other assorted FOSS, that's free and open source standard, programs allegedly transgress 68. So I know for a fact that the Linux kernel argument was completely shot down. Well, they said that if you bought Windows, that they would exempt you from, uh, they would forgive you for infringing on the Linux kernel. Yeah, and they still try to, but, well, <laughs> they, they've never said they don't uh, have that issue anymore, is what I should say. But uh, it was completely shut down in court. The Linux kernel uh, did not infringe. Uh, but I could understand the argument for OpenOffice, particularly if you're, by OpenOffice, you mean like the LibreOffice suite. It I could see that argument being made. But it, it depends on what these these patents are. Because, I mean, what do they patent? A method for typing text into a field. Have hey, a, a method uh, for selecting formatting for text. Like, is that really... Hey, back when uh, a uh, rich text editor was a cutting-edge thing, if you got that patent, that's pretty valid unless that patent expired. Interesting. Interesting. Well, uh, there is another patent that we didn't talk about that's actually very, very important to us. And that is a pat the patent on podcasts from Personal Audio, LLC. I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but over the last couple of years, uh, and this has honestly been going on, I think, this whole decade, but it's kind of amplified or peaked a couple of years ago. Uh, there, this, this venture, I believe they're, I believe they're an NPE, uh, say that they own the method for downloading MP3s off of an RSS feed. And they have used that patent and threats. And, and here's the problem with patent trolls: that the costly and the uh, um, uh, the the costly litigation that could arise from infringing on a patent uh, is enough to threaten people to stop using the technology rather than uh, having them license it. And there's a dog barking outside because it is, I, I uh, you know. When we did the show in the basement, we could hear the record store. And now that we moved up to the fourth floor, we hear a dog that's barking outside for nobody. I think you think we're hearing it because we're not hearing it on our end. Well, that's good. But, it, you know, it probably is barking at me talking through a, a window in a, in a cement wall up, you know, 300 feet away. And it just, I don't know. Anyway. Uh, podcast, uh, podcast patent licenses and patent trolls and personal audio. So they have that patent and they went out after a lot of podcasters saying, Hey, uh, we demand that you pay us some exorbitant fee or stop doing podcasting. Uh, and a lot of people have said no. A lot of people have told them to go after themselves. I believe, um, Adam Carolla, uh, 
he has a, a podcast, well, he has a podcast network, and it was doing relatively well. He decided to, I believe, fight these guys in court, which required a lot of money. And he held a donation drive on all of his podcasts to help support this venture. So somebody has this BS patent. They start trying to sue a bunch of well-meaning individuals like us, saying that we've infringed on a patent that may not actually be, not, may not actually be valid, and then because we don't have the millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars to fight them back, we essentially have to capitulate and say, uh, fine, we'll either pay you or we'll just you know, close up shop and, and go home. And um, as earlier arguments have said that NPEs, non-producing entities, uh, really stifle innovation, this is a classic example of it doing that. Um, and it looks like Personal Audio LLC was formed in Texas. That's right. So... Uh, let's see. Wait, an LLC not formed in Delaware? Texas has no state tax. Ah, so it's just like Delaware. Exactly. My LLC, Pneumonium, is uh, based in Florida for the same reason. And Florida is a great state to do business in if you don't live there. It's also Um, apparently a great state to do bath salts in from what I hear. Yes. It's a great state to do a lot of things in as long as you leave within a week. So, (laughs) I I heard their their, their liquor stores require you to uh, leave with a gun, though. They're not allowed to leave well, with they, alcohol. They have a, they have a loaner gun. gun. They have a loaner gun that they give you when you walk in. Ah, okay. Yeah. This way you just carry it, and then you, you know, when you, when you pay, and they give you the liquor, then you give them the gun back. Mm, makes sense. Exactly. Yes. Don't go to Florida. Anyway. <laughs> uh, unless you want to get murdered. Anyway. And, uh, or do bath salts. Or do bath salts, uh, or, and eat people's faces. Uh, and this is said after, you know, over 20 years of living in Florida. Don't go. Um, a company has claimed fees from podcasters who publish audio and video on their websites have suffered a patent ruling defeat. It looks like, uh, did this go all the way up to the Supreme Court? Uh, no, but, but the U.S. Patent Office has now invalidated critical parts of a related intellectual property rights that it previously granted to personal audio in 2012. The EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, say... This decision significantly curtails the ability of a patent troll to threaten podcasters, big and small. And I'm sure they follow that up with, catch us on our next podcast at EFF.org. But, um, unfortunately, what did they say? Uh, but unfortunately, our work to protect podcasting is not done. Personal Audio continues to seek patents relating to podcasting. We will continue to fight. Uh, Personal Audio has sought the right to appeal against the ruling and still lists its patent for, quote, episodic content on its website. And this is from 1996. The Personal Audio Player incorporated a novel mechanism for automatically identifying and receiving, retrieving media files representing episodes in a series, in a series as those episodes have become available. So, when you said write an intentionally vague patent, that is an intentionally vague patent. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, what I don't understand is if you're not allowed to say uh, blah, 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 blah on a computer, you know, this thing that already exists uh, for television on a computer now that's my patent, uh, mm-hmm. wasn't this, I don't know, wasn't this the same thing that technology the TV was using? Well, it all depends on how you argue it. Man, I, maybe I should become a lawyer. This mechanism was later widely adopted as the industry standard technique called podcasting, but that's on them. So, uh, later, serialized TV shows started using the technology in a, serial, in a similar fashion. So, I guess they're trying to, you know, sue everybody. Wonderful. Brilliant, brilliant patent trolls. 
Um, oh, here's a here's an example uh, back from that article I was reading. I invested 1.6 million dollars and lost it all. Personal Audio LLC, the patent holding company, is the attempt by the investor, me, to get a return on that investment. Investment. Uh, he told Slash Dot in 2013, defending his company's business model. He law Okay, so this guy. Uh, I'm trying to find his name. Whatever. Um, oh, Mr. Logan. Uh, he invested $1.6 million in acquiring a patent, and he lost it all and is trying to sue everybody into paying him for all the podcasts that now exist. Now, what's interesting is he sat on this for, what, 10 years? Before he actually tried to make an argument about mm -hmm. it? And I think that might have uh, worked against him because he just waited so long before actually trying to... If he, in 2004 had told Adam Curry, who really invented podcasting, that his script to download MP3s off of a website was infringing on their patent, that might have, that might have actually, if the patent was, was written and argued correctly, that might have actually prevented podcasting from happening. But he waited until podcasting started generating money, which was this decade, and, uh, and then he wanted a piece of it. And that's not okay. That's just opportunism. Mm -hmm. So, do you have any... Uh, what do you think? If we, you know, if if is that either is that a shrewd patent or is that you know, a, a horrible misuse of the legal system? I think most software patents are just a misuse of the legal system. It's uh, I, I do think there should be a way to protect your IP in software. I don't think patents are the right answer. Patents are interesting. More so of a, how uh, would you recommend doing it? I would recommend it through licensing and. Uh, I mean, licensing in the sense of like your actual software licenses, where it's a license agreement to say. Hey, if I do infringe on this, there, there's like a set of rules as opposed to saying I have this idea because patents, it's this I have an idea. The licenses are saying I have this product. But the thing is, is that the licenses always include that type of language, legal disclaimers, legal barriers and stuff. And the 30 page EULAs <laughs> that nobody reads do include that type of terminology. Oh, yeah, definitely. But my, I'm saying my argument is the licenses have to do with a product as opposed to an idea. Okay. And I feel like, hey, that's valid if I'm infringing on a license. Like, uh, I like the, uh, the two uh, licenses I uh, use for a lot of software I build would be the Apache license, which basically says, uh, here's this built product. It ships as is. Uh, there can be a co uh, commercial use built around it. Uh, it can be uh, forked and modified uh, with my approval, basically. And it also says that anyone can contribute to it. So there and are uh, what? The, then the other one I was going to sorry the, the other one I was going to mention is the MIT license, which is basically exactly. the same thing except no guarantee on uh, uh, commercial use of it. It's just saying you can use this to build something of commercial use, but you can't make it the product for commercial use. So there are how many open how many standard license agreements would you say there are? Oh, there are, are thousands, but uh, oh, are there thousands? Uh, oh, there's, of course. I mean, there's like Creative Commons, but that's a is that a license type or is that a copyright? I, I, I don't know offhand, but uh, I believe that's a copyright. Um, but gotcha. I, what I would the say GPL, though is the uh, MIT and Apache licenses, I believe, are, are at the, least the ones that those govern are the three most, most popular open source yeah. ones. Exactly, um, and and you don't even need a patent to uh, to use them. No, in fact, all, all software should be licensed. Exactly, exactly. And I'm a firm believer in licensing because I would love to create another billion-dollar technology company like Microsoft. Except, you know, 
have things look good and work well. Um, so I guess more like Apple. Uh, but they didn't work well. I don't know. Anyway, um, so we've talked about podcasting. Now we have one way of fighting back against these evil patent trolls. And that's with something called the Innovation Act that, uh, spoiler alert, was killed in committee. But the thing is that the Innovation Act of the 113th Congress was a bill that would change the rules and regulations surrounding patent infringement lawsuits in an attempt to reduce patent trolling. Uh, basically, as I click, it would, it would create additional requirements of the legal process uh, associated with the patent infringement under U.S. law. One requirement would be for plaintiffs, plaintiffs filing the lawsuit to be more specific about the alleged violation, making it harder for them to file a vague claim of infringement. The bill would require, quote, a party alleging infringement in a civil action involving a claim for relief arising under any act of Congress relating to patents, including to include the court, sorry, to include in the court pleadings unless the information is not reasonably accessible, specify, re reasonably accessible, specify details concerning. This is really one hell of a legal speak. Uh, each claim of patent allegedly uh, infringed including each accused apparatus, feature, function, method, service, or other in accused instrumentality. Two, the person alleged to the direct infringer uh, for each claim, uh, and it must have been infringed correctly. And number three, the principal business of the party alleging infringement. Oh, and num uh, there's a lot of them. Number four, there's not, they're not bulleted, that's why it's all in the paragraph. Each complaint uh, filed that asserts any of the same patents, and number five, whether the patent had been declared essential, potentially essential, or having potential to become essential to any standard-setting body, as well as whether the United States or foreign government has imposed by any specific licensing requirements, period. That is one Side sentence. effects may include. Side effects <laughs> may include. You Side effects may include. Exactly. Erections, lack of erections, flushing. Your throat may close up. And many other standard side effects for pharmaceutical drugs. No, uh, it's unfortunate, though, that despite that whole uh, spiel, I don't think it... I don't think it, it... It died in the Senate, from what I understand. Hmm. But, I mean, this would seriously cut down on the amount of time spent litigating because this, this basically requires everything that comes out during a patent uh, lawsuit. This requires all of the things. This requires a lot of specifics, so you could possibly invalidate it before it even gets to court. Hmm. Uh, former President Barack Obama indicated his support for the bill. Uh, well, that stinks. Um, we tried. So, but you say that patent trolling is decreasing. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Uh, just because a lot of uh. A lot of, um, I'm trying to th uh, think of the right word, a lot of these litigations are uh, are being uh, basically denied uh, because of the mentality of the people who are currently in office for um, maintaining uh, the order for patents, particularly the uh, head of the patent office, the former Googler. She's very just against patents in general. So it's one person, basically, that has... Not one person, but many people with, with this mentality that patents do not contribute to society or, well, it should be more don't contribute to their best interests is what it really comes down to. Gotcha. 
Have you heard of the Open Information Network? Uh, I have heard little blurbs here or there. Nothing. It's detail. another one of these uh, um, consortiums, uh, conglomerates. There we go. Uh, of 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 companies that want to work together to trade their patents and intellectual property for mutual benefit. Uh, they are the largest patent non-aggression community in history and supports freedom of action and Linux as a key element of open source software. The parties include IBM, Novell, which I guess still exists, Philips, Red Hat, Sony, NEC, which also I guess still exists, Google, Toyota, Canonical, and TomTom. OIN acquires patents and licenses them royalty-free to its community members, which in turn agree to not assert their own patents against Linux and Linux-related systems and applications. Shouldn't that be Unix? No, these are all no? very uh, Linux-focused What is the real difference between Linux and Unix? Uh, Linux is Unix-based. Uh, a big part of it is, uh, at least uh, when Linux came about, Linux was made up of a bunch of modules that you could pull in and out, while Unix was a single executable binary. And ah. from there, from there, it was also the fact that Linux was kind of like take a bunch of ideas and follow particular standards, but uh, pretty much like a whole from scratch. Just here's a model to build on top of. Uh, while Unix was its own thing that was created, uh, a good uh, I think it was like. Uh, 60 um, years ago uh, by AT&T or Bell Labs rather yes uh, if, uh, sometime in the 70s I forget the year offhand oh I thought it was in the 60s I'm sorry um, either way what is a Linux sorry what is a Unix that's not Linux I guess that's OS 10 or the whatever well Unix that's another OS that, so that's another Unix based system because it is the Darwin kernel and so things that takes are a, Unix so that takes actual direct code from Unix instead of ideas and standards. So it's a little bit more closely related to Unix, but still it is its own uh, kernel. In fact, the most true form of Unix out there today would be FreeBSD. Okay, and that is not Linux. That is not Linux. Why is that not Linux? Uh, well, uh, at least uh, in its early starts, it was also a unit. Um, shouldn't use the word unit kernel, but uh, it was a single binary like Unix and tried to take the Unix kernel and it built on top of it as opposed to taking bits and pieces or just taking ideas. It took the actual Unix kernel and built on top of it. Gotcha. So all of the like bootloading and device drivers and stuff, that's when you say single executable, you mean the kernel is a single executable? Yes. The, well, the kernel is that at, at its core, the operating system, everything that uh, people on the consumer side, call an operating system are a bunch of applications built around the actual operating system. The operating system itself is the kernel, and uh, yes, the kernel in FreeBSD or and Unix is a uh, well. FreeBSD has changed now. It used to be though that it was just a single executable you compiled and executed. Uh, Linux, think of that more of like a, a dynamically uh, linked executable. So yes, it has a single entry point. But then you have a bunch of shared objects that you also point to, which are your kernel modules that you can load and unload at runtime. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, it's which... nice to finally get that uh, distinction from you. <clears throat> um, well, it looks like we've been on for a little over an hour. Do you want to talk about Martin? Oh, O'Malley. Uh, O'Malley. Uh, sure, I'll give a little update. Its backend is... Uh... Well, it's complete from a... I wrote out all the features for the backend side. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on one it. second. Hold on, hold on, hold on one second, Christian. We gotta, we gotta do this right. We are a show, you know? We gotta, uh... 
Say, friends, do you like low latency networking? <laughs> no, actually, I haven't written any copy for this. <laughs> then you might like Martin O'Malley. That's right, not the presidential candidate, but the program that Christian and I are developing to help people communicate better online. All right, so what does it do? So, uh... It's, it's a quick uh, refresh from last week. Its end goal is you, you hit a button, and it'll uh, basically say, can I have the floor, can I just talk? And then, uh, uh, basically, if it is a race condition, it'll do an election on uh, who does get to talk, but normally it just says, okay, this person gets to talk. And the idea is it's using peer-to-peer networking to uh, reduce latency, and it's then doing a, uh, a Paxos-based algorithm across that peer-to-peer uh, network. Oh, what? To do Sorry? The- uh, so there's a family of uh, algorithms called, pa- uh, well, there's a natural Paxos algorithm, and then many algorithms Paxos? that, yes, and then many algorithms that stemmed from it, that is used for uh, consistency across uh, distributed systems, in a way that uh, you can, uh, the idea is you can write to multiple nodes, and uh, then have consensus across those though, so that way it's not like they get out of, uh, out of sync that easily. Gotcha. And this also is based around uh, the Raft decision algorithm? So Raft is a uh, subset, uh, is uh, a derivative of Paxos. And so what I built is a derivative of Raft. Interesting. Now, I've, I've actually seen uh, Raft in practice on Facebook. Believe it or not, there's these memes. I can't remember where they're coming from. But it's, uh, it's, like, the, it's, the, it's like a hexagon. At each vertex is a point, and it'll, it'll say something like, what will be the most popular political ideology in the next hundred years? And then it just has everyone trying to steer its way into you know capitalism, socialism, communism, whatever, fascism, all that stuff. And... Uh, and then, you know, however, based on who's based jamming the buttons or electing more, <clears throat> having more votes, it'll go in that direction. And then it eventually reaches a tipping point where that's been selected. Is that correct? I'd say it's a very out of sync re- uh, raft protocol that I would be very, if I was, say for instance, using that for database rec- replication, I'd be very scared that that's happening, but. Why would you use raft for database replication? It's a very common one uh, for a lot of these newer databases out there where instead of just writing to that same node every time, you can write to any one node and then say, hey, i got to write. Uh, let's just make sure we're all on the same page. And then if there is a conflict, there is a master node who says, okay, I'm settling the conflict. It is going to be this. Interesting. So all of the, when you try to write to the database and you have a cluster of servers, all of them go, me, 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 I want you to write to me. And no, then... it's uh, just the nearest one. So uh, it'd be... Uh, uh, some type of load balancing or something, or just uh, if you do want to hard code it to whatever uh, a node is the closest to uh, to you, uh, would do that. In fact, uh, kind of related, uh, Google just um, made uh, for public consumption uh, their database Spanner, which is a uh, database that can be accessed, uh, read, and uh, you can both read and write to it from any one node. And the idea is that it's a globally distributed database. Uh, this can be seen similarly in, uh, I'd say, CockroachDB is a SQL uh, database that's trying to do the same exact thing. And in fact, it's based off of Spanner, just it's uh, SQL, and it just hasn't been stable. Uh, and so Google kind of beat them to the punch in this one. Gotcha. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so you've done, you said you did all of the backend uh, virtual LAN stuff? Yeah, so, well... Uh, there's the basic uh, backend stuff, which is just the peer-to-peer networking, the uh, taking a message, sending it, and doing the elections. 
and also just the uh, discovery of each uh, uh, note, uh, each peer in the cluster to be able to say, Here, here's a peer, here's a peer. Uh, so the uh, VXLAN came in on the fact that uh, without doing a lot of work to get around the fact that we're behind uh, like your traditional consumer routers, uh, which there would be a lot of work on everybody's end to get that to work normally. The way I got, the, got it to work was uh, just set up this uh, VXLAN uh, SDN where we dial out to a particular master node and then we become part of this subnet that just spans across this master node running on a public server as well as our uh, personal laptops behind a, a and you're saying router. that like this all of this extra latency all of this or all of this these networking it's, things are or, or, or have a dramatically low latency so the latency is uh, practically nothing because it is a, uh, essentially the packet is uh, being sent still in the same packet it's not like you're sending additional packets it is uh, so the way VXLAN works is it'll uh, emulate an IP layer packet and wrap that in a UDP packet that then the uh, SDN itself can send uh, over a tunnel to any node in the cluster. So it uh, creates this virtual uh, subnet that everything can communicate on uh, and then that, uh, the only additional work really is to unpack that UDP packet and then treat the underlying, the I should say, the containing data in that packet as a new IP packet. Interesting. So, how does that help my horrible ping to the service that we're using to do the podcast? Uh, it doesn't help that specific situation. It helps well, the latency I mean, no, of us I being able to If we were using O'Malley rather than uh, this service. Oh, if we know. were to also support audio over O'Malley? Yes. Uh, so, that would definitely help. Uh, we'd be able to, if we were to build basically this service on top of O'Malley's networking, uh, it would uh, definitely uh, help. Uh, we are doing peer-to-peer to, -peer to uh, do the live playback right now, but a uh, big issue with that is this does go through uh, our, our routers and has all this... Uh, it is a very complex to be able to uh, have our browser connect to a peer-to-peer -peer network. Uh, there's a lot of work that WebRGC does under the hood that it handles that, but it's still more work than the idea of just sending over this... Uh, you're sending over uh, more packets, basically, with WebRTC than uh, O'Malley's just sending over uh, pretty vanilla TCP packets over uh, this SDN. So it's TCP packets wrapped in UDP packets, but it's still just the one packet instead of the multiple packets WebRTC does to accomplish going through your router. Interesting. Um... RTC. Wouldn't it, would it be better to have a separate uh, network or channel for just the audio? I mean, I, I would suggest uh, we do a whole separate instance of O'Malley for the but, audio. But I mean, we both have to run on the same device. Yeah, it's, it's just another uh, network interface that... Okay. Uh, another virtual network interface that's and being that's created. And that's not going to kill on latency, is it? You ever run Docker Machine on your Mac? <laughs> yes, of course. Have you ever done an IF config while running it? Uh, no. I what suggest happens? you do. You'll see what a happens? lot. You'll see at least one or two new uh, network interfaces that are virtual network interfaces. Ah, that makes sense. That and makes sense. they don't. They do not impact performance uh, to any substantial degree. Gotcha. That's good to know. Um, of, well, I, that, I say, of, of any other resources, it doesn't interfere with any other resources. Gotcha. Was that um, all that you want to talk about for O'Malley this week? Sure, uh, I guess uh, going forward, it's just going to be testing it and then doing some front-end stuff. Fantastic. Well, that's, fan that's great. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really excited to see where this goes. So, 
Um, to bring us back to patents, I've got one last story for us today. That's Apple may have paid Qualcomm approximately $40 per iPhone, accounting for a third of Qualcomm's revenue. And my voice is about to give out based on this oh, call. Oh, this wasn't really patent-related so much as the whole don't favor any one uh, seller or buyer of uh, supplies. Oh, was it? Yeah, this wasn't really patent-related. This, the whole Qualcomm thing was uh, Apple cutting a deal with a particular uh, – I forget if it was a supplier or uh, somebody who's buying directly from Apple. Something where it was like uh, Apple was uh, cutting a particular uh, – company deal on uh, uh, somewhere in the production line of iPhones and there is a law in the US saying that you can't uh, you can't favor any one specific company uh, when it comes to that you can mm -hmm. always shop around for like the cheaper price and things like that but you can't be like hey I'll cut you this deal uh, for exclusivity or something it's basically just like one of those antitrust uh, we have laws. plenty of exclusivity uh, deals though like that oh yeah but not for like materials. Materials kind of are an easy way to say, hey, this is an antitrust thing. What if we said, what if Apple said Qualcomm is Apple's official provider of broadband chipsets? So there would have to be some public. Uh, so the, the, the big issue is the fact that it wasn't a public thing and they were favoring companies. So if it was a public thing of saying, like, hey, we are uh, exclusively dealing with these guys and we're favoring them because of that or we're going to do a merger with them, something like that, then that's okay. But the fact that it was like, hey, under closed, behind closed doors, we're going to cut this one company a deal and still charge everyone else up the wazoo. Interesting. Um, it says that uh, uh, Qualcomm was one of many companies that contributed, oh man, my voice is, <clears throat> to the development of standards relating to how cell phones connect to voice and data networks, as I'm slowly sounding like an older man. Uh, as a contributor, Qualcomm is entitled. No, as a contributor, Qualcomm is entitled to a fair royalty based on the value of its particular contribution. Qualcomm is not entitled to collect royalties based on the contribution of others to the standard or unrelated innovation by companies that utilize the standard. But this is precisely the business model that Qualcomm uh, has established as it protects through monopoly power and unlawful licenses. In order to purchase Qualcomm chips or obtain access to patents pledged to a cellular standard, Qualcomm demands third parties pay a Qualcomm a royalty much greater than the value of their contribution to the standard. A value based on the entire price of the innovative products that only incidentally incorporate the standard. What this means is that in the case of the iPhone registered trademark, that when Apple engineers create a revolutionary new security feature such as Touch ID, which enables breakthrough technologies like Apple Pay, Qualcomm insists on royalties for these and other innovations as it has nothing to do or that it had nothing to do with, and royalty payments must go up. When Apple spends billions of dollars refining the concept of a smartphone camera, Qualcomm's royalty payments must go up. When Apple sells an iPhone with added memory, 256 gigabyte instead of 128. Qualcomm connect, collects a hot, larger royalty just because of the added memory. Apple products are among the most innovative in the world, so they say, yet it, because of its monopoly power, suppression of the disclosure of information to government agencies investigating Qualcomm and an abusive licensing model, Qualcomm believes it is entitled to collect its, quote, tribute on each and every improvement. Apple has been overcharged billions of dollars in Qualcomm's illegal scheme. Allegedly illegal scheme. Allegedly. In, an action to in an action to recover its damages, uh, uh, brings this action to recover its damages, so they sued Qualcomm. So, it's not okay, this isn't a patent troll, but it's definitely a trolling license agreement. But, would you say this is bad? They're, based, they're thoroughly monetizing their licenses. Eh, I, I, I really don't have an opinion any one way, to be honest. 
Well, Tyler, what do you think about this? You've been silent for a while. Uh, I think it's all good. Doing a great show, guys. Sorry, I, we didn't mean to. Uh, <laughs> didn't mean to keep you out. That's oh, okay. Just I got Reddit on you my gotta phone. You got to jump in. You what? I got Reddit on my phone. Mm. Oh, any any interesting stories uh, while we were on the air that you saw? A lot of good stuff, but it's mostly political this weekend. Yeah, you know, it's really hard to sift through the news to find tech news that's not just madly political. Anyway. Speak for yourself. <laughs> okay, that's not on hackernews.com. And even some of that stuff is political. Oh, Or the hackernews.com. Anyway. No, it's just hacker news. Oh, anyway. Uh, one minute, 20 like in. I gotcha. I believe this brings us to the end of our pull request, but... We have a special uh, two, I think our next two episodes will be special editions as I hopefully don't get sicker and will travel out west to the beautiful land, that's South Florida, of not South Florida, the other (laughs) South Florida of Southern California. That's right. Tomorrow at 3 p.m. I'm leaving uh, to go out west and I will spend the next two weeks in California and Oregon. And uh, I'm going from uh, Orange County, number three which is where Newport Beach is in Costa Mesa. Uh, Orange County number three to Los Angeles, to Santa Barbara, to Portland, and then back down to San Francisco. So Say hi to Fred Armisen while you're in Portland. Yes, thanks. Hopefully we can use men, do many uh, things that are also legal in Portland together, um, even though I'm sure he actually probably lives in Brooklyn. Uh, <laughs> uh, what else? So that means that next week, I believe, we'll have a special treat for you guys that may not actually include all three of us. But that remains to be seen, based on the hilarity that ensues in the week between the two episodes. So, on that note, for the last episode in Brooklyn for two weeks, Christian, do you approve this pull request? Looks good to me. Tyler, do you approve this pull request? Yep. Well then, let's all hit merge, and we'll see you next week in California, right here on Pull Request. This has been the Pneumonium Production. The views and opinions expressed on Pull Request do not necessarily reflect those of Pneumonium LLC or its subsidiaries.